Liquid gold. Mike, go for it. Where the stories aren't bought or sold, they are merely retold. Welcome back to Liquid Gold right here on the We Own This Town podcast network, weownthistown.net. My name's Mike Wolf, your host today, along with my co-host, Mr. Kenneth Dedman, who will be checking in with us later and has a fantastic edition of Booze News today on the show. Very special episode today. We've got, I believe, our first James Beard finalist on the show today. An interview with cider legend, orchard legend, Miss Diane Flint from Foggy Ridge Ciders. Foggy Ridge bottled their last vintage of cider back in 2018, I believe it was. And they are now uh, just strictly focused on the orchard. So we talked to her about that, as well as um, I bother her quite a bit about maybe getting some of her secret cider that she that she has in the cellar, but uh, to no avail. But anyway, it's a lot of fun. Great to talk to Diane. That interview is coming up in just a few here. This is part one of our season finale here. We're doing the cider season finale. This is the uh, season two finale. So uh, it's kind of fun to break it up into seasons for us and try to end it with a big bang. We tried to get Cider in for September, but we had So Tall to talk about, and Negroni Week, and then uh, we had our lost episode, which we really needed to air, but we've had this one on the calendar for a little bit, and we're super excited. Kenneth, later on in the show, is also gonna talk about being back at work at Husk. He's been back there on the weekends working, and uh, has a little update for how that's been for him. Uh, We want to encourage anyone who's going out there to the bars, going out there to restaurants, have your mask, wear your mask, and super easy to just remove it, move it below your chin, down on your neck to eat. That's what uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci has recommended uh, as recently as this week on The Daily Show, talking to uh, Trevor Noah. However, we've got lots of cider to talk about, lots of cider to drink here. Got to throw a shout out to Tennessee Action for Hospitality. They are helping hospitality workers here in Middle Tennessee. I did the book, ebook, with a lot of my friends and uh, amazing beverage professionals all over the country. Lost Spring, How We Cocktailed Through Crisis. It's available on Amazon as an ebook. And we are raising money for hospitality workers here in Middle Tennessee. So please check out that ebook. Look forward to it being a hard copy, beautiful, beautifully bound book that will be coming out in May cocktails, cordials, some amazing drinks in there, and then also just people's thoughts about what it was like to shut things down, what it was like to quarantine during the spring and summer. And uh, Lost Spring really refers to the drinking season that really kicks off there in early March to late March and continues on to patio season in the summer where people start drinking a little more rum, more tequila, maybe some more cider. But uh, f- those flavors, those vibrant spring flavors, I thought it was kind of interesting that we really missed out on that this year. And that's when I started talking to beverage professionals, what maybe they were going to make, what things they were looking to do in the spring of 2020. And that's uh, part of what makes up this book. So please check that out. It's for a great cause. And uh, it's been a labor of love putting it together and uh, been a lot of fun. Thanks to Liquid Gold artist extraordinaire Jess Matchin for doing the cover. Beautiful cover. You can also find a cocktail column I'm writing at gardenandhealth.com. That's garden-and-health.com. Doing a weekly cocktail column over there where I get to just get into some of the foundational drinks and just more basic drinks that, that everyday folks can make. This week I'm talking about Hemingway's classic not only book, but also the cocktail, Death in the Afternoon. I thought it'd be good, October, spooky season. Thought it'd be a good time to break out the absinthe and get y'all into that drink. So check out that recipe that will drop uh, on the same day as this podcast, Friday. The Death in the Afternoon, super simple drink. And I want to I mention here how you can make it a cider cocktail really easily. So the Death in the Afternoon is a really simple drink where you're just adding like an ounce, half ounce, of absinthe into a glass of champagne. Maybe do a lemon twist if you're feeling fancy, but um, that's really all it was. And it was a way for Hemingway, who liked to drink, liked to drink champagne every day. It was a way to make the champagne a little bit more interesting and a little bit stronger. So um, one thing that I mention with 
absinthe that you can do if you want to do a quick louche where you don't uh, you don't have the absinthe spoon, you don't have the sugar cube, that's all fine. You don't need the fountain. Just pour an ounce or a little bit less, say a half ounce of absinthe over ice. Stir it up for a little while. You'll notice the compounds that are not soluble in water in the absinthe will start to release as you're stirring the absinthe over ice. Those flavors come out, the aromas come out. Just take that absinthe that you poured over ice and stirred a little while to release those compounds, throw that in a coupe, top it with champagne. It's a little bit lighter version of that drink, but also, um, as I mentioned, this would make a fantastic cider cocktail. So throw a little bit of absinthe, half ounce to an ounce, in a glass of ice, stir it around for a little while until it's nice and cloudy green, that cloudy green color that we all love so much. Throw that into, say, a wine glass and add like five ounces of cider. And I think you have a really simple, really complex, because what's one of the most classic pairings with apples? Fennel. All right. And fennel being a main flavor of absinthe. So you really have a nice flavor affinity there. You've got some cool herbaceous and uh, tart sensibilities of cider. So you can make a really complex, really cool cocktail with just a little bit of absinthe and some cider. And for that version, I call that the rebirth in the afternoon because I really, it's not going to be near as strong as just drinking uh, really strong absinthe with champagne. It's a lighter way to experience that cocktail. So there it is, the rebirth in the afternoon, a little bit of louched absinthe and some cider to top it off. That would be a great one to get your uh, fall weekend going here in Middle Tennessee or wherever you reside Oh, one more super easy cider cocktail that you can do, the cider spritz. All right, this will be a great thing to do for the fall while still having some of those bright and zippy flavors that uh, we associate maybe with spring and summer. So take uh, take some beautiful local cider, maybe some of the uh, Brightwood cider here in Nashville, who we'll be talking with next week on the show. So for our cider bonanza that we're doing to close out season two, Uh, But for a cider spritz, say take a light vermouth in place of the Aperol for your traditional Aperol spritz. Take like some Lillet, maybe some Dolan Blanc, maybe Coqui Americano if you like a little bit of bitterness in your spritz. Take some of that, pour that over ice, say maybe an ounce to an ounce and a half, and top it with cider in a wine glass over ice. Add some herbs from, from the garden maybe some thyme, sage, add that. And there you have it. A really simple cocktail, great for sitting outside as the temperatures are dropping. These days have just been gorgeous lately. So that'd be a good one to enjoy on your patio or your porch at home. The cider spritz, super easy way to enjoy cider in the form of a cocktail. All right, let's turn things over. Without further ado, Here is uh, an interview I did just yesterday with Diane Flint from Foggy Ridge Ciders. You can find them at foggyridgecider.com. They have a newsletter that you can sign up for on the site. She's got some, uh, some really cool news to share in this interview and a lot of just incredible insights on Orchard Bay Cider and her journey from moving to, uh, moving to some beautiful land in Virginia and starting a cider operation located in the Virginia Blue Ridge Mountain, farming uh, Hughes Crab, Harrison, Tremlett's Bitter, Ashmead's Kernel, and Dabinet, as well as many others, all full of uh, beautifully complex flavor. Here it is, and we'll uh, follow that up with some booze news later on, right here on Liquid Gold. Diane Flint from Foggy Ridge Ciders here on the line, an amazing beverage professional, I think our first James Beard Award winner on the show. Uh, nominee. Four times nominee. Nominee. <laughs> it's like uh, Meryl Streep before she won. Yeah. Well, we were really honored to be a finalist for the last two years of our production with Foggy Ridge Cider. And one thing I really like about the Beard Awards is it's a, it's a recognition um, by your peers, it's it's an industry award and it's a recognition. You know, the the beverage, the award for beverage professional is not for the person who makes the best 
you know, wine, beer, cider, or spirits in the country, but it's for contributions to the industry. And I was just really honored to be nominated four times and to be a finalist um, in our in the last uh, uh, two years. That's amazing. So Diane Flint, pioneer in orchard-based cider here in the last uh, couple decades. Diane, just first of all, we talked a little bit before we started recording, but uh, how has the wildness of 2020 um, been for you and how has it affected you overall? Well, I think it's mostly been, um, you know, it's a couple things. It certainly has affected the security and, and insecurity of the farm workers who help us here at Foggy Ridge. You know, we're a small orchard um, and rely on people who have, you know, who work for multiple farms and Mm -hmm. who are, you know, skilled uh, in orchard maintenance and in in general farm work for the rest of our farm, but who, who are, you know, working multiple, kind of multiple jobs. And for them to you know, have the insecurity of, of income in some cases. I mean, we've provided our steady employment and have supplemented and helped our workers, but that's not been true across the board. And then have children, you know, at home and trying to juggle that with two working parents who, you know, don't have the, um, the luxury of working from home. Right. Um, can't, you know, harvest crops and take care of uh, agricultural ventures from home. And so I think that just saying, just being involved in their lives and helping them to the extent I can, you know, mitigate their insecurities and just, um, you know, deal with what's in front of them. That's been, that's been, it's, it's been tough. It's been really tough for them. And, um, it's hard to find resources to, to help them out. Some of the larger orchardists in Virginia who have big crews or who use um, uh, workers who, who come in on work visas, you know, they're dealing with, you know, if one person gets sick, I mean, that's going to take the whole harvest crew down. It's just a, it's just a real challenge. Yeah. It sounds like you've been doing everything you can, and uh, we appreciate that. Before we get into how you got into making cider and how you got into being an orchardist and um, all those things, can you tell us a little bit? Because those of us here in Nashville, Middle Tennessee, we were becoming used to being able to find Foggy Ridge, and it was in restaurants and things, and, and things sort of changed for you guys. You are producing less. Are you producing any cider at all? Yeah, actually, in 2018, we produced our last cider. It was called Foggy Ridge Final Call. Mm -hmm. And after um, we started our orchard in 1997, and um, we were ready. My husband and I were ready for a different pace of life. Mm -hmm. And I won't use the word, the R word, retirement, because I don't ever see myself retiring or not working. But we really, we were making... You know, our, what we envisioned as a small business had become a pretty big one, and we were bottling in a very artisan way over 70,000 bottles a year in our little facility and running an orchard and handling a national distribution. I found myself spending you know, most of my days at my computer, which is what I did when I was in the business world, and I thought, why am I doing this? <laughs> Why am I all of a sudden out of the orchard, you know, away from the very thing that I wanted to be doing um, and back into more of a business role? So we um, we looked at lots of different options and in the end decided to retire the Foggy Ridge Cider brand and to, um, to focus on growing apples and selling our apples to other cider makers. And so that's been your focus now. Are you, are you yourself uh, finding more time to be out in the orchard? Are you finding that balance to be better now? Well, I am. I also have a really exciting new venture that, that I want to tell you and your listeners about. But I'm awesome. definitely spending more time in the orchard, and we've we've um, you know we have a mature orchard. Our original test orchard was planted in 1997. We were the first all cider apple, authentic cider apple orchard in the South. I think in the 20th century. Wow. Um, and then our expansion orchards were planted a few years later. So we have very mature orchards, and they were really geared to producing cider. 
as we produced it at Foggy Ridge. And as I look at making cider for sale to uh, make growing cider apples for sale to others, I've made a few changes in the orchard just to to make it make more sense to have uh-huh. more apples of the same variety just to help out the, the people who are wanting to make an orchard-based cider. Wow. When you talk about orchard-based cider and also uh, apples that are fit for for making cider, what exactly are you referring to? What is what is uh, so crucial about an apple being geared towards cider production as opposed to maybe an apple that we might get at the grocery store? Well, there are a couple things here, and think about it on two tracks, not just the apple variety and the, t- and the flavor components, the, the flavors that it carries, but think also about how it's grown and harvested. So mm-hmm. um, let me take the variety side first. So cider apple, you know, think about a wine grape. You, of course, you can make wine from those green Concord grapes that you have on your on your table, mm-hmm. um, but it's not going to have the same character and depth of flavor and interest as a wine made made with a Chardonnay or Cabernet Sauvignon or Petit Verdot or any other great you know wine grape. The same is true for cider. You can make cider from any apple, um, but ap- but cider made from Granny Smith or, you know, Red Delicious is certainly not going to have the same depth of flavor and interest as cider made from Dabinette or Hughes Crabapple. Mm-hmm. And the components you're looking for in a cider apple are the same that you look for in a wine grape. You want tannin, acid, sugar, and complex flavor. Mm. Um, and you do not have those things in any apple that is not specifically chosen for cider because you're, you're not going to have the tannin because that gives you bitterness. Mm-hmm. Um, now, that's not to say there are many cider apples that are good eating apples. One of my favorite late eating apples that, that is just being harvested right now in Virginia is Gold Rush, and that's an excellent cider apple. So, so you think about the, the cider variety and the flavor characteristics they carry. And then the second thing that's important to think about for cider apples is how are they grown and harvested? So the apples that you're buying in the grocery stores are grown or even often on you know, farm stands um, in the mountains. Not so much at farmer's markets, but certainly at farm stands where you're having you know, big producers are picking you know, t- tons and tons, literally tons and tons of apples, and they're keeping them in, st- in cold storage. Um, many of those apples are grown um, and harvested for long storing. They're going to go into cold storage, or they might in some cases go into controlled atmosphere storage, and um, they're going to be hanging around for mm-hmm. months and months and months. So they're, hard- they're not harvested dead right. They're harvested, they may be physiologically ripe, which means the seeds are ripe, mm-hmm. and you could plant the seeds and get an apple, but they're not, the flavor has not developed. So one of the unique things about our apples at Foggy Ridge and the reason that it's, it's, a, ch- it's a challenge to grow and harvest them is that we, we harvest our apples like a vineyard would harvest grapes. So we're out there every day or so testing and tasting apples. We want to make sure that they have not just sugar development. That, that's a simple way to look at it, but that's not the whole picture. It's flavor development as well. Um, and we want to make sure that's there before we harvest. Mm-hmm. So what was it, uh, going back towards the beginning of Foggy Ridge and also just um, – your, your professional path, because I know you have a background of business and things, um, but what drew you to cider? Did you grow up around orchards, or were you always passionate about cider? What was it that really drew you to, to make cider? You know, I was not always passionate about cider. Um, I didn't even know what cider was until I was, you know, in a, well into adulthood. Um, the only cider I knew was the you know brown stuff that you brought, bought on the side of the road in the fall. Mm-hmm. Um, I did grow up um, my grandparents were farmers, and they had a few apple trees in Georgia, but apples were not, you know, a big part of their crop. But I did grow up with a passion for growing things, and I've always been interested in 
growing woody plants, um, woody woody plants, trees and shrubs, Mm -hmm. and have, you know, just always been drawn to the idea of of things that have permanence, things that will outlive me. And when I wanted to uh, form an agricultural venture, it really was based around place more so than my interests. You know, journalists like yourself often think, well, I had this passion for apples since birth. Mm-hmm. That's not it. I had a passion for planting things since birth, but the apple part really came from this land. And I think that's another part of cider and cider apples that is important for your listeners to understand is that there really is terroir of apples like we hear that word used for grapes. Sure. Apples that are grown here at our 3,000 foot elevation farm, the Hughes Crab and the Harrison and Dabinet and Trimlet's Bitter and Ashmead's Colonel and Smith's Cider and all, all the Southern Winter John, all the Southern Cider apples that I grow, those taste different grown on our site than they would grown in the Shenandoah, you know, just, just you know, 50 miles away. Wow. Grown down in North Carolina, mm-hmm. down in, down in uh, Mount Airy, just, you know, 40 miles away. Certainly tastes different than my cider-making colleagues in the northern Appalachians, like Autumn Stoschak at Eve's Cider, who I think is one of the best cider makers in the country right now. Um, she grows some of the same apples that we do here, and you know, they don't taste the same, and, and we have very similar growing practices. That's amazing. So did you move to that orchard? Did you Were you looking for an orchard that you could, uh, you know, take your time with developing? Um, and how fully formed was it when you, uh, when you started? We apple trees on our property when ah. we bought it in 1996. So you started from scratch. Yeah, there were a few seedling apples, um, just some wild apples. This land had been farmed in the you know 19th and early 20th century but it was farmed by people who lived primarily off the chestnut tree hmm. um, before that that tree became extinct wow so they were not apple growers so i planted every tree every tree here i planted that's amazing so from what i've heard and i have to thank you for for introducing me to the terroir of cider because it was uh from opening husk and we realized that we're going to be pairing some dishes with this beautiful cider from Virginia. It was It's so delicious. Um, so I have to thank you for introducing me to the terroir of that. It seems like a, a, such, a, such a patient endeavor. How long did it take before you thought, you know, I think I've got some beautiful apples here. I think I've got, I think I've got an orchard and I can make some cider. How long is that process? Because it seems like it can be just years. It can be years, and, you know, we planted in 1997, and there were some people growing. Uh, there were just being some experimentation at, at Virginia Tech with uh, southern growers growing high-density orchards. And, and for your listeners, a high-density orchard looks like it looks like a vineyard in a way. The trees are planted very close together just sometimes two feet apart they're trained on wire and they're very they're they're dwarf apple rootstocks so it's the same varieties that you would plant on other large to make larger trees but they make smaller trees because of the rootstock and that method of apple growing gives you fruit much faster um, and it also has some other benefits um and I'm a big fan of it now, but that was not common back in the late 90s. So I planted um, semi-dwarf trees, and I got my first apples in about three years after planting. The trees were, um, you know, 18 months, two years old when, when I planted them. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, you know, five years from grafting, three years from being in the ground. And it was another two years before I got in a, a big enough crop to be meaningful um, for cider making, wow. um, and so it is. Even and even with dwarf trees, it'll be a it'll be a good three years. Um, but you know, it takes a while to do great things. It takes a while to establish a vineyard, right? Um, a little bit longer to establish an apple orchard, but you're still talking about years. And um, 
but those those trees and those vines last a very long time, and mm-hmm. uh, you'll have fruit from them for years and years. It makes the learning curve very very long though, because you make a mistake and uh, it's it's years to get it corrected. Yeah, you're like, uh, well, this tastes okay. It might be a little bit better next year, but it's going to be really good in two years. So you can yeah. start, have to start planning out that way. Yeah. Yeah, and I was able. There were some. There are some apple varieties that uh, were in the late '90s grown in Virginia and grown even more now that grown commercially in a limited way that make really good cider. Um, Wine sap is an old Southern apple variety that I think is a good contributor to cider. I wouldn't do a 100% wine sap blend, but I think it's got a lot, of, especially the old strains of that apple are, are really valuable for cider making. Um, I was able to find some farms in the area who grew Grimes Golden, which I also think is a decent contributor to cider so in my early years when i had a little bit of fruit um, i was able to blend my fruit with um, other cider apples that i could find locally and then um, i was also able to lease an orchard and be very involved in the production of the fruit from an old newtown pippin orchard and that's a wonderful cider apple we call it albemarle pippin in the south but it's the same as the newtown pippin that's grown in new england and um, this is an apple that was long grown long grown in the south and, and i think grown very well especially in virginia and you had a really beautiful sort of dessert cider a sweeter cider uh pippin gold cider yeah, yeah, that was exciting and, and unique. That I don't know of anyone else who's, who's made a, an apple port like we made. So this was our hard cider made from that orchard I just mentioned, that old mm-hmm. Albemarle Newtown Pippin orchard. And we fermented the cider, and then we were able to purchase beautiful apple brandy from Laird's, um, mm-hmm. which is the oldest brandy producer in the country, and although they're headquartered in New Jersey, their production facility is in Virginia, and they, they use Virginia apples. So we're the only ones they ever sold brandy to, and it was straight off the still, unoaked, and it was a real labor of love because we used the brandy to stop fermentation. And, of course, where you are in fermentation, when you want to stop, it never occurs between 9 to <laughs> nine and 5 on a weekday. So sure. I, spent, I spent many nights on a on a um, <laughs> on a pallet down at the cider house checking permits every couple of hours until I then had to pour in, you know, gallons and gallons of brandy. But wow. it really was, was a beautiful product. And I actually have saved some of that and have a library of that port. And it's really doing well. It's it's aging well and I think is is something that I that I hope other cider makers get involved in making. Yeah, it was a beautiful product, and uh, Kenneth and I are both huge fans of Laird's, and uh, he did want me to ask you, have you ever thought about, or had you ever thought about before, making apple brandy there uh, at the cidery? At you know, the orchard? I just, I did, and a lot of people ask me about that, especially people in the, in the, um, in the, in the bartending world. Sure. Um, I'm just not interested in the in the science of, of distilling. It's it's I'm a fermenter and, and I think it has to do with being a farmer because growing yeast is like it's like farming yeast. One of my mentors told me once, he said, you know, fermenting something is just like farming. You're farming yeast. You're trying to give them a healthy life cycle and have them do their best for you. Sure. Um, and distilling is I think more it's just a different process, and it somehow didn't call to me. Sure. And then there are also you know, there are also some challenges with um, licenses, and and I I don't know if that's changed recently, but when I was setting up Foggy Ridge and in all of our years to produce brandy and a fermented beverage in the same space, you needed to have two separate buildings mm-hmm. and two two separate bonded spaces, and that that seemed to obstacle that was tough to overcome so early on as you were uh you know having some success growing these apples building your orchard out what was your aha moment in terms of you realize you just made a really delicious taste of cider 
did you have a moment like that? Was it was it five years in? But tell me a little bit about that, the beginnings of actually turning these apples from the orchard into delicious cider. Our first couple of years were a little rocky. You know, we were we, we made decent cider. I, I think um, we had some some good successes, but we were still we were still figuring out equipment. We were still figuring out fermentation practices. You know, I'd obviously done a lot of experimenting as a home cider maker. I'd, I'd fermented all my apples as single varietals, and I knew what their flavors were. But scaling up from a you know a, a five gallon carboy to a you know four thousand liter tank is a it's a big deal. And, yeah. You know, things didn't always perform the way that that I had hoped they would. But I think after we got about. Certainly, that second year of production was a was a big change of, of seeing that okay this this was uh, this is going to be consistent at least over two years. I started to see some trends by our fifth year, fourth or fifth year. I felt really solid. I felt like we really knew what we were doing. We felt comfortable enough to experiment. You know, each year we tried new yeasts and tried new you know, fermentation uh, protocols, but we were beginning to see what the core of our of our business should be. And were you doing the yeasts on site? Uh, were you using wild yeasts? I had experimented as a home cider maker before I got my license with uh, native yeasts mm-hmm. and continued to be interested in that. And probably if I was still making cider, I would be doing some experiments. But I really, you know, we were doing a national distribution and talking distributors in the late 90s and early 2000s into selling an orchard-focused cider that didn't taste like, you know, Crispin or Woodchuck then and later Mm -hmm. on, you know, Angry Orchard. Trying to get over that, that learning curve with them was hard enough without saying, oh, here's this weird ferment I have over here with native yeast. Sure. Also, believe in a very clean ferment, and our production facility, I built it for making cider, so it was you know, stainless steel and concrete and could be cleaned with a pressure washer. And so the, the yeast that I believe would have come to me would have been more likely on the beards of the young men who were helping me press apples than it would in the, you know, romantic walls of my cidery. Sure. Like you think of, you know, in France with some of the most wonderful, um, you know, native ferments that we're able to, to get now. So, I don't know, it just didn't draw me. I think it would definitely be something I would be experimenting with now for sure. Yeah. Are there, um, you mentioned one earlier, but you are farming your orchard and you're selling these apples to other cider makers. Could mm-hmm. you tell us some that you're excited about or that you feel like are really taking the torch uh, from, from what you guys have done? Yeah, I can. And, and there there's several. I, I guess we've sold to half a dozen or so cider makers. And I have a list of 40 people who have asked to buy our apples. I could sell you know, I don't know if I could sell a hundred times what we grow, but I could easily sell fifty times what we grow, and I, wow. I wish I had, wish I had them to sell. There's a cidery in North Carolina called Molly Chomper, okay. and Kate R. Scott Mills is the cider maker and owner there, and I think they do a lovely job. They're a small operation; they grow some of their own fruit. And they um, also buy our fruit and and some other fruit from Virginia. So Molly Chomper is one. And then in Virginia, um, Courthouse Creek Cider is a cidery near Richmond. And they they do a lot of experimentation. They do a lot of native ferments um, on their own. They do grow some of their own fruit. Their orchard is just coming into production and they're they're great. I really love their their experimental approach. And actually, they I believe they won an award last year with our cider. I think they won a a medal in the Virginia Governor's Cup. Oh, that's um, amazing! And one um, cidery I'm really excited about is uh, owned by uh, Will Hodges over in Warm Springs, Virginia, a Trottenvale cider. And they are growing their own apples. They're buying some from us. They've sourced some really well-grown fruit in their area. And they're kind of out in the middle of nowhere, much like we are in the Virginia mountains. And I think there's a real promise 
to what Will and his wife are doing there. They've made some lovely ciders. They are, you know, making cider commercially now. And they have beautiful labels and just a really wonderful aesthetic. So I think we could expect some really good good things from their cidery. That's amazing. To, to speak of where cider might be headed, uh, there was a, a news story that Kenneth is going to cover later in the show with Booze News, but uh, it's a story that Kenneth and I have been talking about. It may be, I don't want to step on your, your news that you've got for us, but this could be it. Uh, scientists at Cornell received a $500,000 grant to create a unified language for cider. Are you involved in that project at all, or do you know about that? I do know about it, and I've been involved in it. Um, in a, in a, uh, as a supporter for several years now, and it does involve some of the uh, folks over at Virginia Tech as well. It's a cooperative effort mm-hmm. between Cornell and Virginia Tech. Um, and in fact, some of the early work that was done for that, they used apples from our orchard, uh, Hughes Crab and Davinette, because one of the things we want them to do is to ferment cider with apples from New York and from Virginia um, and then taste, uh, sample those with the market of apples grown from the state that they're in. Because obviously, as I said earlier, you know, Dabinette's grown in New York or Hughes Crab grown in Geneva. They're not going to taste the same as, as those apples grown in, in Virginia. That's kind of exciting. Yeah, I think it's really exciting. That was, however, not my news. Oh. Um, one of the things that um, I got involved in my la- in the last couple of years was spending time with um, a, a real mentor to me and friend, a man named Lee Calhoun, who wrote a book called Old Southern Apples. And Lee had pancreatic cancer and passed away earlier this year. And it's a real loss for the apple. Yeah, I'm sorry. He his book, Old Southern Apples, is just essential reading for anyone, I think for anyone, certainly anyone in the South who is embarking on a cider venture or an apple venture, because he uncovered literally thousands of apples that originated in the South or were were widely grown in the South, and many of those are suited for cider, and many were grown specifically for cider. So people who say, oh, cider apples won't grow in the South, that's just BS. I mean, there are hundreds of varieties that have grown for hundreds of years here. Right. We need to know about those. Um, And as part of my um, working with Lee over the last few years and getting his research papers archived at the University of North Carolina's Wilson Library, they're now archived there under the Lee Calhoun uh, papers you can search online for that and anyone has access to those papers um, just a great resource from the University of North Carolina but as part of all that I ended up um, signing a book contract with the University of North Carolina Press to write a book on the history of apples in the south um, oh that's great I mean, yeah I'm so wow. excited about it um, congrats Whereas Lee's book is an encyclopedic listing of apple varieties, mine will be driven by the stories behind those apples and the people behind uh, those stories. So it will it will read much more like historical a story rather than an encyclopedia. But it certainly leaned very hard on his work and the work of other other researchers. So well, that sounds really amazing. Excited about that book, it'll be a. A few years in the making, but um, I've already uncovered some really exciting chapters in, in the in the story of Southern apples that, that just have not been explored, you know, beyond a few sentences. And I really appreciate journalists like you who are interested in taking a deeper dive and not doing just a skim of what the cider story or the apple story. It's so much more rich and complex. It involves overlooked people and overlooked regions and overlooked stories that are really worth exploring to to understand our history better and to understand our present better. That sounds like a great project to be diving into uh, in the the winter there, sitting by the fire, (laughs) doing your research. (laughs) Well, I've actually done a lot of research. I was over in Nashville before COVID visiting some uh, archives there, uh, historic archives, 
and talking to some people who are growing some interesting apples over there these days, old southern apples. And I, a lot of this information is in the special collections at universities, in the National Agricultural Library in Maryland, in the National Archives. So there's a, a good deal of travel, and unfortunately with COVID, many of those sites are closed or I just don't feel comfortable you know, visiting a you know university site at yep. this point in our infection cycle, but many of those resources are, are digitized now. So um, I've been able to continue my research and and make some progress on writing, which I'm excited about. That's great. Um, I want to ask you real quick, going back to this grant, the Unified Language of Cider. This seems like um, really kind of a big moment for cider. If you're going to talk about, we've talked a lot about where these varieties have come from, uh, the heritage of it, and the importance of keeping that going and making beautiful, clean cider. But what what is important to you about creating a more unified language for cider? And what, what would you say is important uh, for that going forward? You know, I may differ from the researchers because they're going to look at consumers as well as beverage professionals but as a cider maker who distributed her cider nationally, I think I really think our most important audience is the beverage professional, the sommeliers, the wine shop owners, the the chefs who purchase you know wine, beer, and cider for the restaurant, the um, educators, the distributors, the sales forces of the distributors. Those are the people who can shape the consumer's understanding of this category. And many of those folks are deeply educated, like yourself, have taken upon themselves to learn. But others, because the beverage world is so immense, they've not had the time or the interest or the direction to really learn anything about cider other than a paragraph. Um, And yes, you can apply many of the taste descriptors from the wine world to to cider. They're both fermented beverages and they're both made from fruit. Um, But they don't all they don't all uh, transfer. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's helpful to have some language, just like there is language in the wine world that that you you can say this is oaky or this has tastes like dry cherries and you immediately know, you know, two two beverage professionals standing to each other, they immediately have a taste sensation flash into their mind. And I think it's useful to come up with similar language for beverage professionals on the on the cider side. I think sure. if you do that, then consumers follow. I think the consumer audience is um, it's just too too big to to address. So I, I, I really am excited about this for the focus on on beverage professionals. Yeah, that's great because I'm sure cider has taken a little bit of a hit uh, with the shutdown of bars that happened earlier this year and then restaurants you know operating at you know what started as not operating operating at all to 20% capacity to 50%. Yeah. I, I imagine that's where a lot of people are tasting really good cider and realizing, how amazing it is as a food pairing. Yes, yes, cider is excellent food pairing. In fact, we have one of the few places we're able to go out to eat is a great little pizza place in a town nearby that has outdoor seating, that brick oven, really great brick oven pizza with local ingredients. And we always take a bottle of cider. Um, I go down to the cellar and I find some from from Eve Cider or, or um, Eden Cider in, in uh, Vermont, it's another favorite cider maker are from one of the ciders, cideries that, that we sell our apples to and head over to the pizza place, and it's just a perfect perfect combination with a spicy pizza. That's amazing. Before we let you go here, um, if, if one was to be near Foggy Ridge, or I don't know if you allow visitors, but are you selling any of the old cider or any of the pip and gold, anything like that at your cidery? <laughs> Dream on, my friend. Dream on. (laughs) We had an amazing retirement party um, for me and for the brand back in 2019, and we drank almost all our stock and um, have no more cider. We do have a few bottles of Pippin Gold, really keeping those for 
you know, library and learning purposes. Sure. So, uh, yeah, no more, no more cider from us. But we do have events here in the orchard. We have not had them since COVID. Mm-hmm. But we, do, I teach um, grafting workshops. We have pruning workshops. We usually do a workshop on how to prune and renovate an old tree because oh, cool. we have some some wild, you know, some seedling trees around the farm, really big, you know, huge, eighty foot tall trees, and we'll talk about how to renovate those if you you know own some property that has those on them, and we um, do some cider tastings just by invitation with uh, cider from um, some of our our uh, cideries that are purchasing our apples. And then I also go out and do some events at, at cideries. Um, now, of course, a lot of that has – all that has stopped because yep. of COVID. But we'll definitely start back up. So if people are interested in visiting the farm, they can sign up on our website for our newsletter. We send it out maybe six times a year with uh, news about events. That's great. That's good to know. Yeah. Um, and if you're ever back here in Nashville – and you need a, a uh, an interesting orchard to visit. I have a friend, Chris, who lives on his family's old orchard, his family's old land, where they've been making cider there just for themselves for, uh-huh. I think, the last 100 years, 150 years. Uh-huh. And wow. uh, he's got one of the most fascinating cave systems underneath the property, which they realized wow. uh, in the last 10 years, I, I think they realized from that they were living on one of the most, most vast cave systems in the country. Um, yeah. So if you need a cool well, orchard so to visit, in Tennessee. yeah, I would love to do that. And I've been visiting uh, with Tyler Brown some over at South Hall and helping him with his orchard. So I will definitely be back. Awesome. Well, great to talk to you. Thank you so much for coming on the show. And uh, keep us keep us posted for I how you're will. doing. And I appreciate the invitation. Thanks for covering cider in such in such detail and with such thoughtfulness. Yeah, and we'll have you back once you're uh, ready to put that book out. All right. All right. Talk to you soon. All right. Thanks a lot, Diane. We appreciate it. A chat with Diane Flint from Foggy Ridge Ciders. That was just amazing talking to her. She has had a a tremendous effect on Kenneth and I's beverage life. Uh, We really discovered incredible champagne-like cider from, uh, from Foggy Ridge when we were opening husk, starting to uh, pair it with different beverages. But Kenneth, you have uh, you have visited there. This was uh, the middle of February, early February this year. Yep. When uh, when we were in Charleston, then we were, we were in Asheville. And uh, from there, you split off to check out Foggy Ridge. Yeah. What was that like heading up there to the hills in Virginia? It was pretty dope, dude. Like, I covered a lot of ground in one day, and I think that that was how I wanted to end that epic trip to Charleston because we did, we freaking lived hard there for what? Like 36 hours, 48 hours, 72, 48 hours. Like, yeah. Not, not a long, we weren't in Charleston very long, but I didn't sleep very much and we were really busy. You were busy. You were very busy, but yeah, I had to be back. I had kind of a, lazy schedule getting back and i just wanted to cover some ground because i had a a dope rental car i had one of those uh the mini coopers but the big one like the suv oh, that's right that's right it's like a four-wheel drive um kind of handle anything gas-powered automobile i say that because diesel 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 engines can handle anything but uh, this was all right enough to like go into like some like mountain terrain i kept on getting lost i was i was driving around for like an hour and a half before i popped out back out on the highway that i had turned off of and uh i went to general store up the street little gas station that had you know like uh a very country loves loves gas station um but there were those old men out there kind of like at the donut shop the old men that are at the donut shop at like four thirty in the morning, but stay there until noon. It was those type right. of those type of guys? Those type of guys were sitting out front, like eyeballing me, probably because I was driving a Cooper, a Mini Cooper. Yeah, and then I'm not from ask, around here. I'm asking directions, and they're laughing. They're laughing at me. I, I went ahead and I admitted, like I didn't write down the directions. I, I knew they were gonna. I just knew they were gonna make fun of me, man. 
<laughs> so I was like, yeah, I didn't write down the directions. So I was relying on my phone, my piece of shit phone, trying to find Diane F- <laughs> Diane Flint mm-hmm. and Foggy Ridge Cider Lady. You know her. And they're like, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Mr. Drove right by it. <laughs> Probably twice. Yeah, they eventually gave me really great directions. You know, she mentioned how she will, she goes to a pizzeria up there where there's like outdoor seating and everything and they do great brick oven pizzas and they'll get like a spicy pizza and they'll bring along some of their own cider Mm. to pair it with and i talked to her about how that was just such a a cool revelation for me was finding that cider was such an amazing pairing for all these different things but what have you liked to pair cider with um over the years it's just a aperitif for me if i can if I can look at that part of the menu, I'm typically getting that to begin with uh, before appetizers. But it depends sure. on the type of cider. Like uh, a high acid cider is really great in cocktails. Like yep. a bright, effervescent, high acid cider is a perfect almost substitute for the champagne when you're sick of pulling that move all the time in the in the restaurant. But uh Yeah. I got some good booze news, bro. <laughs> All right, and the time has come. <laughs> booze news with Kenneth Deadman. October edition. Early October. Not out of the woods yet from uh, the virus, but uh, Kenneth, what do you got for us in this crazy world? Well, I want to I wanna give a big shout out to my older sister. It's her birthday right now. So happy birthday. Lots of love to Mary Dan. I know you got a lot of cool booze news stuff to go over, but uh, in talking with Diane, I mentioned to her about how you'd be covering this today. There was a pretty sizable grant from the USDA National Institute of Food and Agriculture, $500,000 grant for Virginia Tech and Cornell. And this is to create a descriptive language for American cider that will allow producers to communicate more effectively with consumers. So I thought that was pretty interesting. Yeah. Uh, well, like cider has no like uh, any sort of like, what would you call like, like a DOC de- designation? There's no standards for cider in the United States. So while it's been on the uptick as a product that kind of just crashed after prohibition, there's been an immediate downtick because basically dude because americans have an association with an apple as in in some situations like a sweet a very sweet thing yeah you think about like how the apple pie has become so indoctrined in american society you don't really think of apple in any other way but that very sweet decadent delicious apple pie sure or the uh you know which, desserts which is, like is a little sliced apple with along with like a peanut butter and jelly sandwich for the yeah. kids. or uh you know like the like diane had mentioned the brown gallon jugs of cider that you see along the side of the road or maybe at the grocery store uh for this time of year well basically it's final like the department of agriculture is acknowledging that there's been a lot of disinformation as far as what the apple is and what it's been traditionally used for. Think about like um, in Jamestown, in Jamestown, in, in Virginia, we're, we're getting started in the colonies and these motherfuckers don't know how to grow grains. They had to learn how to grow grains from the Native Americans. But because of like, uh, the, like Germanic and... Um, Norman culture of uh, of apple production, they knew how to immediately use a water source and apples to create cider, which was thus like a very low, like invasive microbe beverage to stay hydrated in the new mm-hmm. world, period. Safer than water, yeah. Safer than water. Yeah. Well, it'll be interesting to see what they come up with because is it going to lead to some uh subcategory of cider like ipas like like we have subcategories of beers where it's like are you in the mood for a stout and most people know what that is with ciders because no one's ever really gotten together and decided 
this is a loose scale of what the cider represents, you know, like, is it naturally fermented? Is it filtered? Is it unfiltered? Uh, were hops added? Did you manipulate it at all? It's, it's for the producer, it's, it's wide open and you can have a lot of fun with it, but to communicate those things to the consumer, it gets really tricky. Yeah, so it'll be interesting to see what words are conjured up. I mean, if we could guess at a few... Um, I think that they'll just like, follow a wine model. Is man. it going to be tan or, cider? You know, is it going to be like, I'm really in the mood for a tan. Can I get a tan cider? I don't know. Are there going to be like new words thrown out there? No, I think they're going to use... I'm speculating. Who am I? But I think that they'll just follow like a, like a sparkling European wine model. I think that that's... That would be best for the consumer because mm -hmm. it's not really that hard to educate yourself on, and it would be a, like kind of like a universal beginning to a classification yep. system. What, what else? else you got? Yeah, moving on. Gin and tonic drinkers are more likely to be psychopaths. <laughs> oh man! So does that mean we're both psychopaths? Aren't you a no, gin and tonic the tendencies drinker? Tendencies actually are like uh, sadism, narcissism, psychotic psychoticism and machiavellianism <laughs> a study of 953 people in austria at the innsbruck university uh found that enjoying bitter flavors can be linked to a number of less desirable traits so what they did was they uh gave is that the same story so the gin and tonic and the bitter yeah where did they get to gin and tonic from the bitter thing so is the gin and tonic thought of as bitter that's what i'm asking yeah, it can be. In this in this context. How do you prefer your gin and tonic, Mike? Well, no, I just, tonic has a lot of sugar. So I'm just wondering, like, would Negroni have been better? And that would have been, you know, that would have been more dangerous for us since we just covered Negroni. Or, like, IPAs have bitterness. So I'm just making sure this is the same story. The journalist's name is Greg Evans. Do you want me to write him an email right now? Well, let's call him up. And ask him why he used gin and tonic in his... <laughs> in his headline because i will yeah that's a little it's a little strange aside from his headline um <laughs> the study assessed right around 950 folks they were asked to rank a lot of different types of food that they were given on a six-point scale uh bitter food sour salty sweet then they were giving uh given personality and emotional stability tests the study confirmed that bitter taste preferences are associated with malevolent personality traits, uh, including everyday sadism and psychopathy. Hey! God damn it! What are you doing? Back up! As someone who enjoys bitter foods and drink, are you feeling a little worried about this story <laughs> well i think like uh quarantine has <laughs> definitely uh made me a lot more like introspective mike and all mm. i can say is that i'm constantly constantly trying to improve my behaviors and be less sadistic <laughs> all right well so that'll be uh we'll follow up on that story we will question the uh, fake news credentials of this journalist we also want to apologize to him because we're mostly joking but <laughs> oh Are we? that's great that's great all right in texas man in the texas hill country uh san marcos roughhouse brewing company uh, saw a sinkhole in their backyard turned out to open cool. up into a gigantic cavern where they are aging their beer now they got a free natural beer cellar in their backyard that opened up whoa it's pretty freaking common out there not that uh, it would happen at a brewery but the like texas hill country there, like southeast texas near austin like san marcos is kind of catty cornered to austin and san antonio there's nothing but caves out there it's like kind of like rolling desert hills and underwater caverns that's pretty cool so they got their own free beer cellar yes and they're gonna um, have to outfit it a little bit but. they are they're 
plan on releasing uh, somewhere around 100 kegs early in the year uh, just for Austin consumption with larger release, I think, in Tennessee market, too, uh, sometime fucking next year. Wow. Very cool. In gin news, Prince Charles and Duchess of Cornwall are launching their own gin. Um, not to be mistaken, not to be mistaken with the Queen's, the Queen's uh, Buckingham Palace gin that we reported on earlier this year. Do you remember that, Mike? I do. Prince Charles and Duchess Camilla, they are releasing theirs uh, uh, kind of under the same umbrella of of uh, royal expressions of gin from the royal family. But... Uh, uh-huh. Uh, this is going to be financed by uh, the Fortnum and Mason Luxury Department Store. All the botanicals come from the Highgrove Residence, which is the the home for the uh, Prince of Wales. They are really ramping up the alcohol in the House of Windsor right now. You know, that's I think that's an indication of what um, where they're headed as a brand, the royal family, because it's well, I, s- I don't know. The outlook isn't great. So they're like, we better start making some alcohol. You know, it's kind of like Ryan Reynolds or uh, was it Ryan Reynolds? Yeah, Ryan Reynolds did the gin, right? Mm-hmm. It's a bit. It's a big business move. Yeah, he just. So I think they're just, actually, They see their influence wane, and they're like, we better start making some gin. So we've got a company to sell in ten years. I think it amidst the troubles that they're having, they need to yeah. think creatively and kind of uh, separately. It's kind of weird how they're all kind of separating each other from each other. But drink up. I'm ready. Yeah, I got a cocktail idea. So you do you do royal gin and uh, like a natural wine, or uh, maybe a maybe a rosé. Um, you call it Royale with Lees. Uh, not bad. <laughs> yeah, it just came to me. So it's <laughs> it's good. We still have some improv here on the show in our uh, in our quarantine covid era i think that the, it's an era will look back on fondly in the show i think i think they call the big mac the big mac though well that was a solid Shit. business so before we go for our season finale part one we are closing <laughs> off season two um with a lot of cider talk it's that fall time of year and um we really like diving into topics that we love whether it's negroni whether it's beer whether it's cider um but you kenneth deadman you are back at work at husk and uh tell us a little bit what that's been like there in the bar and uh what you've seen from the guests what can guests do to help hospitality professionals feel a little bit more comfortable in their work because that's been a theme i won't mention which bartender or which place it's not husk and it's not you but there is a bartender i spoke with who said uh she's just fed up with asking people to wear their mask asking people to keep their mask on as they go inside from a patio area but uh what have you seen out there kenneth you've been back at it sheesh man uh i've been in shock mode just getting my body back back on hardwood floors and going up and down stairs like i'm not like out of shape i'm just out of restaurant shape anyone that works in restaurants understands exactly what that means but, yeah, uh, it's like in basketball, it's like game shape. And and there's really no way to get back into it other than playing the game. Right. Yeah, I've heard these stories uh, from quite a few folks that I know that work around town as, as the spots are opening up. Luckily at Husk, everyone's been really cool and been really respectful. Like uh, mask on all the way in the door to their table, at their table they should probably just be asking more of me because I'm just still trying to like get my bearings here. But like, as far as the restaurant, the safety standards that Adam was talking about a couple of episodes ago, I feel safe. So like, if I feel like there's no way to communicate to a guest that they should feel safe if I don't feel safe to begin with. Uh, Of course we we're doing limited seating. And I think that that's like, the crowd control is a big thing, and a lot of places around town have not, nor have they ever really figured out a good number to control their crowds and make revenue. A lot of places are reopening as a last-ditch effort, you know, like 
a lot of places are broke and um they're just trying to try it out and things get wonky there but luckily i haven't seen it i can only speak in hypothetics because i've heard some horror stories about town from friends of ours that that work in restaurants and bars yeah i think we just want to encourage guests and folks out there if you're going to be heading out to bars and to restaurants have the mask with you wear the mask and uh don't be a dick about it and tip extra because the last thing that that uh, folks need right now in restaurants and bars is for people to be rude about and insensitive to the situation that we're in election year or not this is a this is still a very serious uh, situation. So yeah, I could definitely speak on my be considerate on my on my end. Like I'm just trying to uh, talk to people eye to eye again, and it's you know it's something that I've done for years and years, and it's something that I haven't done <laughs> since uh, since March. So like all my tendencies to stutter that I had when I was a kid are coming back and. Uh, it's actually kind of cute, I guess, if you're watching me. Look at this goofy guy try to, like, fumble over the menu. Fucking hack. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, like, I feel like a lot of folks are in that situation. They're just, like, trying to get their, get their feet about them, get their bearings, and get back to, get back to work, ideally, before, their, before, if before, or when before there's another shutdown. We're yeah. trying to be a civilization here. And civilized is uh, the beginning of that. So Nice. Well, good luck to you out there. Thanks, buddy. I'll be coming for the burger and a Sotal martini-ish thing that Adam was talking about. It's, so, it's dope. It's delicious. Thanks so much to Diane Flint from Foggy Ridge Ciders for talking to us today here on the show. You can uh, subscribe to their newsletter at foggyridgecider.com. They put that out uh, a handful of times a year. Hopefully we can all visit coming up uh, next spring or next summer. But thank you so much to Diane. You can subscribe to Liquid Gold Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you hear podcasts. Email us, liquidgoldpod at gmail.com. And find us on Instagram at liquidgold underscore pod. Hit us up. Mess with us. Send us a question, a request, if you will. Thank you to Upright T-Rex Music for the tunes. Jess Matchin for the lovely Liquid Gold logo. Producer Michael Eads and everybody at We Own This Town, weownthistown.net. We'll be back next week talking more cider for the season finale part two. Coming up next week with Brightwood Cider here in Nashville. For my co-host, Mr. Kenneth Dedman, who had a just lovely wide-ranging booze news. We had some fun with it. I hope you did too. My name's Mike Wolf, and we will see you next time right here on Liquid Gold. Later, Tater.